Uh, we're going to be in Daniel 11, 1 to 35 today. It may seem worlds away from anything practical, or to be honest with you, it, it's so rooted in the ancient Near East and the history of coming kings and, and coming and going and passing off the scene that for this text today, you would, you would really need um, your phone on and Wikipedia next to it and me listing off all the names of, of these kings of the north and kings of the south. And so just go in with the right expectation today. Uh, from verses 1 to 35 is a wonderful part of the inspired word of God that sometimes though we say, is it useful? We talked about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 a couple months ago, talking about being a word-centered church and about the truthfulness of the word of God. And when you look at this text, you can say, okay, I believe it's truthful. I believe this all really happened. I believe it was prophesied. The harder part is what? Finding the usefulness of it and saying, is there really something for me today? And that's where we get great confidence that God does have something for us today, but we have to enter it with that humility, approach it in faith to say, There's, there has to be something here for me. There was something for your people then when it was given to Daniel, and there'll be something for us today. So uh, follow along with me as we see how, even in the example of whether it's Romania or whether it's here in Hickory, in Daniel 11, the word of God is not bound. Uh, never underestimate it. And we can. Maybe not its truthfulness, but its usefulness and how we're going to use it. But it's, it's an amazing word. And I'm going to read just a few verses into it. And then we'll um, look over a scope of 375 years of ancient Near East history to find something that God wants us to know today. So, Daniel 11, verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants nor according to his authority, which he wielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. The grass withers, flowers fade, sovereign kings, or so they think, like Alexander the Great, will also fade away, but the word of God remains forever. May he bless thee hearing and applying of it this morning. When I was talking with Brother Niku through George, it became apparent to me of how important it is to have a hope in the future. I remember hearing MacArthur talk about that in class one time when he was teaching Revelation to us. And he was saying, you know, we really try to work out all of our theology very, very precisely. You know, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of the Spirit, and we kind of keep end times in its own category as if it doesn't really have much for us. But he said, and he, he didn't reference his trip to Bucharest in the 90s, but he referenced when the Soviet Union was broken up and communism fell in Russia. And the first time he had an opportunity to go over there and teach for a week. And he asked the guys, what do you want me to teach? And they told him, teach us about the end. Take us to the book of Revelation. We want to know how this thing ends. But we want to know who's really in power. Though kings come and go, we want to know that our hope isn't here. And that has stuck with me then, and it, it was apparent to me in, in meeting Niku that um, why the whole counsel of God, and particularly the counsel of God that deals with the end, is, is so valuable to our faith is because it reminds us that we do have hope no matter what hopeless situation we might be in, whether personally or the country we live in, and that ultimately our hope is never to rest on man. And that keeps getting, get, getting drilled into us through the book of Daniel from the beginning because all seems lost. If you haven't been with us from the beginning, all would seem lost for a young man at 15 named Daniel who is brought over by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, when it was sieged. And yet in verse 2, Daniel wanted you to remember that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And Daniel has never let go of that thought in the 70 years that he's been in exile right up until the end here in Daniel chapter 11. That the hope of his 
of his prosperity or adversity in a foreign land did not rise and fall on the immediate blessings that he saw. He, and we've talked about that from the beginning of this book. The two horizon lines that we base our life on. We see what's happening in front of us and Daniel saw what was happening in front of him throughout the years and we saw the history of his life from chapters one through six and sometimes it was him being in the presence of Nebuchadnezzar lifted up and sometimes it was being thrown into a lion's den by Darius. But either way, his hope did not rest on his situation, nor does ours. And so here he is at the end of the life and he has these prophecies he's sharing that he received. They weren't somebody else's in Daniel 7 to 12. And they all come back to this same theme. That though it, you might put your hope in God's promise of restoration, if you are God's people in this time period of going back to your land, of not being in exile anymore, you may still feel in exile back in your homeland. You may not go there and everything suddenly turns around and everything is in your favor. What changes for the person is when their perspective changes. Whether I'm in Babylon or whether I'm back in Jerusalem, whether I've been given everything back that I lost or whether I have nothing, Yahweh remains the same. And this prophecy, this last vision in chapter 11, which is an extension of chapter 10 and goes into chapter 12, and so this is where our time in Daniel ends, that vision he's given puts Israel, puts God's people in these 35 verses right in the middle of the action as if they don't matter at all. I mean, they, if you read, and we will see it by skimming over it in the history of this, they are just like this ping pong ball in between the north and the south, back and forth, fighting for a little sliver of land that was promised to God's people and just being treated as if they didn't matter. That's what Daniel would see as ahead when he is given this vision of the future. That the future isn't that Israel gets to go back to the land and finally that they have all the power and the glory and the honor restored to them. Far from it. They're going to have 375 years of chaos. At least when it looks like it from man's perspective. But what Daniel is being shown and what we are being shown is that though there might be those I'll call them today A-listers in history. Those people that make the, uh, the history books, that, that, that people remember their names. God is showing Daniel and showing us one final time that that's not actually who matters in the bigger scheme of things. It's the small person that's faithful to the end. It's the one who doesn't rest upon what legacy they leave in a history book. It's what is said about them in God's book. And that's the big lesson to today. This is, this is, I guess you could put this heading over the two points, that making the A-list of human history is not nearly as important as making the A-grade in God's theology. That what you know about who God is, His will and His work and His ways, your theology, what you believe by the time we get to the end of this book, outdistances infinitely what A-list you may or may not make in your life. So let's cover 35 verses in a short amount of time by talking about the A-list of ancient Near East history. And it's an A-list because as you go through, I've, I've talked about this and when you glimpse ahead in prophecy with Daniel, he sees mountain peaks. He doesn't see everything, uh, this happened and next year, this happened and next year, this happened. Sometimes there's great distances of time in between. But four kings whose names also happen to begin with A kind of carry the action from verses 1 to 35. Ahasuerus, who was this really rich king from Persia, you see in verse 2. And then Alexander the Great, another really powerful king from Greece in verses 3 and 4. And then back and forth in verses 5 to 20, you get the battle for supremacy between not the north, south, east, and west after Alexander the Great passes off the scene. The focus becomes God's people in Israel. So that's why you only hear about the battles between the north and the south because God's history is centered on God's people, not on all these passing kings. And one of them, uh, the, the third king of notoriety would be Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great. And then you have Antiochus IV, who though he only was in power, if you want to call it that, for a short decade of time, he gets all of verses 21 to 35. So in some ways, there's this... Um, 
wide swath of time passing in verses 1 through 35. But as 200 years go by, just in two verses, and then you get 150 years go by from verses 5 to 20, and then you get down to just about 10 to 12 years in the last 15 verses, 20 to 35, shows you that God is trying to teach you something throughout history. That he's going to rise up and bring down whoever it is he wants to accomplish his purposes so God's people don't lose heart. So we're not going to be able to get into the details of all these names and faces and places today, but I'll try to give you enough that at least you can be writing some of these names down and fact check me later on on Google. Because if you do it right now, you won't pay attention. I mean, this is one of those sermons. You really got to have your Encyclopedia Britannica next to you. But I'm not here to exposit the Encyclopedia Britannica. So if I don't seem as verse by verse today, it's not because I like fell off a horse over in Romania and hit my head. I didn't ride a horse, actually. They have cars. All right. Let's start in verse 1. In the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. And most commentators believe Darius is another name for Cyrus. And so the first year of Cyrus, we have learned, is 539. And the decree is issued for him to let Israel go back. So that's where we start in verse 11. And this angel is saying to Daniel, the same angel we met at the, in chapter 10, who's giving him an encouragement that things are going to get bad before they get better. Uh, he's strengthening Daniel and he's telling him about the future. And we learned in chapter 10, he's telling them that there's way more than meets the eye going on. There's a spiritual battle that has been going on starting in Daniel chapter 10, the third year of Cyrus, well, he's saying, hey, walk with me back to the first year of this Darius, that Mede, this Cyrus. For three years, I've been working on this guy. Notice that in verse 1 of chapter 11. This angel arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. Isn't that kind of interesting? This pagan king? You have an angel working overtime behind the scenes trying to fortify him. For what? Well, well, whatever we know about the history of Israel happening in 539 is that God was preparing to send them back. But the work of Satan and his uh, strategists is for God's people not to get to go back. Why? Because if he breaks God's promise, God's not God. Right? Beginning of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel finds in the book of Jeremiah while he's having his daily devotions that after 70 years, Jeremiah 25 and 29, there's a promise that everybody gets to go back from Babylon. Well, if the enemy can work to break a promise of God that one of these kings in power would have to decree, then God's not God if he doesn't keep his word. So that's what's at stake in verse 1. And it made me stop in my own study and want to pull the car over and think about 1 Timothy 2. And this is, just a, this is just an aside today, but I think it's an important one. Why are we called to pray for those in power? 1 Timothy 2, I mean, this is New Testament. We're not even trying to abstract something from the Old Testament here, friends. This is a New Testament command to the church. Paul gives it to Timothy to give to the church at Ephesus. 1 Timothy 2.1, First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a life of tranquility and quiet in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of our God. What is that we pray for those in power so that we can live a life so that what? Men can be saved. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But if the gospel is bound, if the word of God is bound, if God doesn't keep his promises to get the gospel to the end of the earth, then what becomes of his promises? And what becomes of the gospel? So, what convicted me, and whether or not you, it's just a matter of maybe how much time you spend on Fox News. First of all then, uh, Paul doesn't say, I urge that complaints and bitterness and angst and long Facebook rants be made on behalf of our current president and the VP. Right? 
Maybe exam- I mean, when you think about what's going on behind the scenes in something like Daniel 11.1, 1, that there's so much more to be seen about how God is working through pagan leadership, non-God-fearing dictators, or elected officials. It may be a good time, again, simply pulling the car over this morning for application and ask yourself, what's the ratio of my complaints to prayers for our president and the White House? And just start there. I mean, you could look around the world and find all the dictator names and leader names and ambassadors to pray for. But I would just ask you to start today. Am I to take that verse as a command to obey? I am. But what does my heart want to do? It wants to latch on to the leadership in my country and maybe put more hope in them than I should. Because I think my future as a believer really rests on who's in office. Does it? Is the word of God going to be bound by that? The word of God might be persecuted by that. My job may be at stake. But I got a plan B I just can't say publicly. Might have to do with opening a sandwich shop and having a secret knock and then downstairs you come and... Everybody's got to have a side hustle. For Armageddon. All right, I'm done. It's Romania talking still. Jet lag. But it was a convicting point for me. When you think about this angel saying, I'm working overtime to strengthen and fortify and encourage Darius. And he's not a follower of Yahweh. He's a pawn. He's an A-list pawn, but he's a pawn. And he's moving God's purposes forward despite his own resistance. And despite the enemy trying to work against him and against the angels. Okay, that's all. Now let's try to look ahead to 2 to 35 and summarize some of this history that we would need supplemental material to see. So I I did a little drawing. Again, hopefully this is helpful more than anything else. Uh, There's Daniel and there's this angel. And uh, these are always available for sale after the service. I got to put some kids through college eventually. There's the four A's. Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes I, he's there in verses 2 and 3. He's, he's this fourth king in Persia who's going to arise, and so I numbered them 1, 2, 3, 4. Now, if you go back and check your history books, there's 13 of these guys who ruled in the kingdom of Persia, but this is why we, we, we interpret prophecy with a little bit of um, wiggle room, because just because it says there's three more kings and then a fourth going to arise doesn't mean that's the exhaustive list of them. So, Daniel, looking forward with this angel, is just told about there's going to be a couple of them come, and then here comes Xerxes, and we know Xerxes existed, and we know he had a lot of power, and he had great riches, and we know near the end of his life, but not the end of the Persian Empire, he picks a fight with Greece. And we have learned about Greece all the way back from Daniel chapter 2, that these kingdoms are going to come and go. First, gold, Babylon. Uh, Next, you're going to have Persia. Next, you're going to have Greece. And then you're going to have Rome. And that's kind of been revisited in all these dreams and visions throughout the book. And this is the view now Daniel is getting with the most detail. And it covers, uh, up until this period, about 200 years. So in these two verses, just about Persia passing on to the rise of Alexander the Great, I just called him Alex for short, 332, uh, we've, we've fast-forwarded 200 years in two verses. That's how prophecy can work. It doesn't always have to be this year, then this year, then this year, then this year. There can be some gaps because, again, if you ever go for a hike up in the Blue Ridge and you're trying to see whatever mountains are off in the distance, they can all look in a certain way the same distance away until you start what? Moving through them. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, I thought this was the highest thing. And now i got to walk another five miles. Hike over. Well, that's what's going on with him. So we cover Ahasuerus, and you also know him as Xerxes. You also know him from the book of Esther. Uh, verse 5, then the king, uh, sorry, verse 4, as soon as he's arisen, his kingdom will be broken up. So now we're talking about Alexander the Great. As soon as he gets to power, and we know that's true from history, he only needed about 10 years to conquer the known world, gets to India, cries because there's nobody left to conquer. But in his um, pride and debauchery, dies in his sleep, whether by the finger of God that just says, done, 
Or was he poisoned? Whatever it was. History doesn't remember and history really doesn't get to make that call. God does. And he's gone just like that. And his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, meaning north, south, east, and west. And you know that after Alexander the Great died, he didn't get to pick his own descendants, which is kind of the way that it worked back in the ancient Near East. You would want to pass on your kingdom to your son. He doesn't get to do that. And so it goes to his four commanders, north, south, east, and west. But just like that, Scripture moves on from Alexander the Great and his sovereignty is uprooted. And then verse 5, we get into verse 5 to 20, the battle between the north and the south. The king of the south, which is Egypt, which is where the Ptolemies took over, and the kingdoms of the north, which would have been Syria, which is the Seleucids. And that's the back and forth battle. And uh, I can show you a picture from one of my commentaries that if we were to dig into the details of verses uh, 5 to 20, these are the names of all the kings of the north and the south that come and go. I don't know if you wanted me to exposit that today. I mean, what you would see is just that game of ping pong. The North gets some power, the South steals it. Uh, at a few points, like verse 6, there is even some um, intermarriage going on, as in some of the kings, like in verse 6, uh, the king of the South will come to the king of the North to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not reserve her position of power, as in there is this lady named Berenice, not Bernice, the lady that works downtown here in Hickory, but Berenice, a much better name. Uh, apologies to all Bernices here. Uh, add an extra E. And she, in history, was given over to this king uh, to help king a keep the kingdom along. I think it was Antiochus II and uh, they get broken up and he goes back to his first wife and she has it arranged for him and his other ex, his ex-ex to be murdered. All happening in verse 6. History. Facts. Uh, you also had another power play like that of trying to send a daughter down in verse 17. Antiochus III will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace. And again, they're all just trying to fight over this little area of land we call Palestine. He will give him the daughter of women to ruin it. Now that, according to history, if you line up the timeline of this, is where Cleopatra I comes in. Not the Elizabeth Taylor version. Uh, she doesn't come along for a while. There's a lot of Cleopatras. The first one is here in 17. It backfires on the king. He will give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Warning to all dads trying to arrange marriages over in the nursery. The, the person you're trying to line your kid up with, it may backfire. Antiochus tries lining up Cleopatra with the king of Egypt, and guess what happens? She really likes the guy. She's just not going to be some bride spy for her dad and ends up just wanting to stay down there and rule and reign with him. Can't make this stuff up. But God can call it hundreds of years before it happens down to the littlest detail. That th these backdoor deals that these kings who are coming and going and, and trying to fulfill and sometimes they're fighting against each other and then sometimes they're trying to have treaties and, and make good with each other. But either way, it is God who is doing back in Daniel chapter 2 in the first prophecy, the first time God has to help Daniel understand what the future is going to be. We're, we're seeing this come full circle in chapter 11 in high def. When Daniel's life was on the line and those around him, because nobody knew the dream or the interpretation for Nebuchadnezzar in the second year of his reign. So Daniel's what? Second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. He's 17. I mean, he has set himself apart in chapter one and he is seen as a wise young man. But now his, his life is on the line and other people's lives are on the line. And this is the first thing God reveals to him when he sought him in prayer in Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is God who changes the times and removes kings and establishes kings and gives wisdom to wise men. I mean, that's what's carried Daniel for the last 70 years. From, from day one of him having to get into this prophecy business of telling men who are in power and that could have his life snuffed out just like that. Guys, here's the truth. All y'all gonna come and go. <laughs> That's it. Um, don't kill the messenger. But y'all are just gonna come on and off the scene and God's gonna raise you up and God's gonna take you down and not just you, but your whole kingdom. 
And that's essentially the message of 5 to 20. It's a back and forth, back and forth, until we get to the last peak that he can see in this first section, which is Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And we learned about him back in chapter 8, that he was this small horn that was going to grow out of the the horns that were on the goat of Greece. Alexander the Great, four horns come up, verse 8, and then out of that, this one little horn. And he's going to magnify himself and think more highly of himself than he should, and he's not even that great of a power. In fact, back in Daniel 8, talking about Antiochus Epiphanes IV, 175 to 163 B.C., here's how he came into power. Verse 23 of chapter 8. A king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his power. As in, he's not an Alexander the Great. He's not an impressive uh, powerhouse of personality. He's a backstabber. Flip back to Daniel chapter 11. We meet Antiochus Epiphanes IV. After all these other kings of the north and south come and go, verse 21, and this is where we get 15 verses on a real despicable guy. It says it right there. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, as in he was really supposed to be, history tells us, fourth in line. And he weaseled and connived his way to the top. Promises made, promises broken, and this is how he gets into power. He came in a time of tranquility to seize the kingdom by intrigue. My favorite line of this whole section from one commentator on Antiochus Epiphany IV in this section was, horrible people often succeed. Amen? I mean, I know I went on a rant about who we put our power and pray for, and I'm not here to say, like, it doesn't matter, be totally indifferent. Listen, horrible people often succeed. So just kind of fly that banner over all of Daniel 11, 1 to 35. And praise God, we get to vote every four years. We at least have some say. We don't have to sit back and do nothing, though that time could come. So here's this really awful guy that practices deception, verse 23. Alliances are made. He practices deception. Uh, He goes up and gains power with a small force of people through times of tranquility. He's kind of like a Robin Hood of his day in verse 24. Uh, He'll go into some rich areas and tax them and take their money. And then verse uh, 24, part B, he'll distribute that plunder and provision amongst the people. And that's his scheme. But it says it's only going to work for a time. And you follow the course of Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And for those 10 or 11 years, he had some power. That's what he was doing. He was always going back and forth from the north down to the south, uh, stealing from some people, giving it to some people, trying to always maneuver and connive and to set himself up. But he wasn't an actual king with uh, military know-how. And schemes will be devised against him, verse 25 tells us. And many in his army will fall slain, but he, he somehow still survives. And when he is kind of hit rock bottom, verse 28 to 35, where does he turn his attention to? History tells us he goes back to Jerusalem. He, he can't really control this area between the north and the south if he doesn't have the middle. And he, he runs into these stubborn people we know as the Jews who resist his Hellenization. He's a Greek at heart. And he wants the known world to all be Greeks. And what stands in the way is this, uh, you know, nobody God named Yahweh, who apparently at one time, you know, split a Red Sea and delivered his people. Antiochus IV doesn't really give a rip about that. He just wants to rip these people off, but he's not going to do it by force only. He's going to try to woo them. Look at verse 32. By smooth words, he'll turn to godlessness those who act wickedly to the covenant. What is that saying about Antiochus Epiphanes IV? It's exactly what he did from 167 to 64 in Jerusalem. He was able through his influence to fool some of God's people who really weren't God's people with his flattering words. As those who would act wickedly to the covenant. What covenant? The covenant that God has with his people. I've loved you, Israel. You stay faithful to me in return. Well, they're breaking that covenant. Why? They're putting their trust in who? A a king. I mean, that's been their problem all along. Infidelity to their God. Not trusting in his promises. And and now they got this smooth-talking king from the north. 
But, verse 32, the people who know their God will display strength and take action. It's probably the Hasmonean dynasty. Some of those who rose up in power and said, we're not going uh, to bow. Uh, when, he, when Antiochus puts a statue to Zeus in the temple and when he sacrifices a pig on the altar, the abomination of desolation in verse 31, some of these guys were ready to fight. And so some wouldn't bow. But yet they would, what, verse 33? They'll fall by the sword and by the flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. And that's what happened. Now, when they fall, they'll be given a little help from surrounding countries, but many will join with them in hypocrisy as in selling out their fidelity to Yahweh. Some of those who have insight or wisdom will fall. But look what God was doing in verse 35. Though it doesn't give Yahweh's name, this is what he's doing, telling Daniel that's going to happen to God's people hundreds of years in advance. He's doing this in order to prune them, refine, purge, make them pure until the end time because it is still to come at the appointed time. So, so, so that's a jet tour through 375 years of history. But you're sitting there like I was sitting there this week going, what's the takeaway? What's in this for us in 2023? I mean, you can't help but not see that God knows every detail of history mapped out. I mean, that's big picture. He knows. That's the title of the sermon. But we've seen that from Daniel chapter 1 verse 2, haven't we? He, he's the one doing all this. From the beginning of Daniel to now, he's rising up and putting down all in power to prepare God's people to welcome their true king, the Messiah. That they would recognize God's chosen Messiah, the Psalm 2 Messiah. He's given them a chance by showing them, well, I should say by telling them hundreds of years in advance and then showing them as these kings came and went that trying to trust in any earthly power is completely futile. One preacher summarized this section from 1 to 35 this way. I've dubbed this segment the uh, futility of history. From Xerxes to Seleucus IV, we have an overflowing dossier of lies and schemes and conspiracies, of victories and disasters and tragedies, of the never-ending hurly-burly confusion of wars and political turmoil. But the text doesn't merely want us to hear the racket, but to see the futility of it. And so it is today with us, beloved. So I sat back and said, what do we, what do we take away from this though? What, how can we make the, moving into the application today, how can we make an A grade in our theology? That's what I want today. I, I don't want us necessarily, you can do this on your own time, to just go back and be like, man, there's a couple interesting things there. I wanna, I wanna check out and see if they're, they're actually legit. And you could do that, but I don't think that's gonna make an A grade of theology. That just makes you kind of a guy who likes to know stuff about history. Learning something about God is what teaches you theology. And so here's my lessons for us today. I used to be a teacher in a former life. And uh, I would just throw out things from time to time in short form and say, hey, you want to get an A in Mr. A's class? Here's some tips. So I got three tips to get an A in theology today. Tip number one, and this is the application. Do your homework. Do your homework. As in, you have to step back from a section like this and even a book like this, looking at the history of the ancient Near East and the change of power between kingdoms and how powerful men fell. And you do that work, but it won't gain you anything if you don't let it do the work on you. Do your homework. Because the adage is true, people that don't learn from the past are bound to repeat it. And what mistake could we repeat if we're not doing our homework today? We're going to miss the big picture of mankind's lot, that we are just like grass. We grow up in the morning, we dry out in the afternoon, and we are blown away by dusk. In Daniel 11, in the form of this book, is the last stop on that train. It's the last chance for Daniel and Israel and for us to see 
When we do our homework on mankind, from great to small, no one dodges the judgment of their own pending mortality. Nobody. It's coming for us all. And it doesn't care who you are. A-list or Z-list. It doesn't care. But you got to do your homework on your own life. And you got to ask yourself doing this homework when you read this book and this chapter and you think about for a moment. For, for me to understand just the level of history from man's viewpoint, I need an encyclopedia to connect the names. And there, there's a lot of them and they connect. But you got to ask yourself a question about your own legacy. In the way you are living right now, are you more caught up in being remembered in man's history books or God's? Because only one book matters in the end. And the Bible tells us that book. It's the book of life. You don't see a name of any of these kings I just mentioned here. We need history to tell us that. And only history remembers them. If you're going to be remembered for something that matters, your name must be in God's book. And there's only one that will be opened in the end. And it's in Revelation chapter 20. And this is a prophecy that John saw of the future. He saw a great white throne, Revelation 20, 11, and him who sat on it. And then picture this, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. Has there ever been anybody in any form of leadership that when they take their throne, heaven and earth run away? No. I mean, there's some that men run away. But there is no one like Christ who when he takes his throne, heaven and earth will flee away. And I saw the dead, the great, the A-listers, and the small, the no-names, standing before the throne, and books were opened. I don't know what those books are, so nobody come and ask me afterwards. But another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged from all the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you got to answer a question today. Is my name in the book? You may wonder, how do I get my name in the book? Mm, here's a cheat sheet. You got to know the author of the book. And your name must be written in his son's blood. That's the only ink that's going to show up in the book of life. Is your name written in the book of life by the blood of Jesus Christ. If your name's not written in his blood, in God's book, then your end will be the end that those that were given up from the dead, from all time in history. It's the only way you get in. And that's the only way you're not left out. Your name in God's book. And is it written in the name of Jesus Christ by the blood of the Lamb who gave his life for sinners so that they can live eternally with him. As Tommy's testimony said today, it's not about reading Revelation 20 and just saying, oh cool, I want to go to heaven forever. Sounds like an awesome place. I want to go to heaven forever to be with my Savior. And if he's not there, it ain't heaven. And that's what eternal life is about. It's about knowing the one true God. John 17, 3. This is eternal life. That they know you, God the Father, and your Son, Jesus Christ. That's eternal life. Just so happens that for all eternity we'll be a different place than this one, enjoying it with Him. In His presence. So I ask you again, have you done your homework on your own life today? Is your name in His book? You can come to Him today. You can trust in Him today. His spirit calls out to you today 
to lay down your life and to turn yours over to him and to seek his forgiveness when he may be found, when you can hear his voice calling to you. His sheep know his voice and they follow him. He's calling you to be saved. He's calling you to trust him today. He's calling you to put your faith in his blood. The perfect sacrifice in your place on the cross 2,000 years ago. You believe that by grace through faith. And he welcomes you into eternity. Do your homework. Second tip, take your time. When I was a teacher, everyone uh, would know, as other teachers would know, um, when a kid just rushes through. And it could be tempting to just have rushed through today. I mean, I tried to give it my best shot to, to pull something out to hang on to without preaching an encyclopedia of facts. But when you slow down and actually see what's in the text today, something popped out to me that was seemingly insignificant, but Christ says that not a word, not a jot or tittle, not the smallest letter will pass away from his word. And, and the word, two words today that most impacted me when I slowed down and I took my time. And, and but. Conjunctions for my schoolhouse rock friends. Anybody under 30 probably doesn't know what I'm referencing. There is something to be learned from the conjunctions today that preaches. Follow. Verse 3, and a mighty king will arise, Alexander the Great, and he will rule with great authority, and he will do as he pleases. Man, this is going right for him, isn't it? Just like it could be going right for you. And your life could just be a string of and, 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 and you are on top of the world until verse 4. But, who puts that conjunction in your story? You wouldn't pick it, but God will. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up and parceled out to the four points of the compass, but not to his own descendants, not according to his authority. Conjunctions preach, brothers and sisters. That is your life if you slow down to take heed. Maybe today's the day you need to sit down, step back, and write your story out or think about it today and say, how much am I just trying to line up a succession, a series of ands? Winning, victory. I do this, and this happens, and this happens, and this happens. And don't go preaching to me about this sovereign God who can just... I mean, if he could do it to any of these kings mentioned here, he can surely do it to any of us. And he's willing to do it because he loves us. Proverbs 19, 21. Many plans are in a man's heart, but, there it is, the counsel of the Lord will stand. So you can go through like I did in verse 4, 6, 7, 9, 11, 12, 14, 18, 19, 20, 21, 25, 27, 29, 33, all the way to the end of Antiochus Epiphanes. And you could read all of those moments of and, 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 but. And, 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 but. And that's God just saying, I'm still the one running the show here. None of these guys. None of them. And not me and not you. And if you slow down to look for it in your own life, are you amazed by what you see? If your heart is restless today with where you are right now, maybe today is the day you need to slow down and retrace your steps. For God's glory and praise. Rather than just terminate all your understanding of your life by your own decisions and deeds, step back and look for God's directing hand. Why? Because it shows us just how impossible and prideful it is for us to play God. When you step back and look, when you tried to play God and be sovereign over your own life and he stepped in, does it not humble you and remind you of how impossible it actually is 
and how prideful. It's never really worked out the way you wanted, has it? When you consider the 135 prophecies of Daniel 11, 1 to 35, coming true over 35 verses in 375 years, and that's how many there are, maybe then the truth of God's sovereignty over your perceived ability will crystallize a little bit more. Here's how I'd summarize this. God's ability to know every detail of the future is easier for him than your own ability to make sense of a few facts in your past. Do you believe that? It's easier for our sovereign God to call the future perfectly, all time, all peoples, everywhere, than it is for you or me to look back in my life and even make sense of the facts of my past. That's a sovereign God. He can look ahead through all time and see all things and it work exactly as he calls it and I can't look back to my last week and make sense of it. And it's easier for him to do that. Amen. I mean, he's not breaking a sweat calling the shots here in chapter 11. And that's how sovereign our God is. I mean, if you need practical evidence of this, think no further than your busted NCAA bracket. I got this on Saturday. Just after round one, 32 games played. Two numbers, zero perfect brackets remaining. How many people tried? Over 20 million. 20 million people with 20 million independent thoughts, except I filled out five of them, so not for quite 20 million. <laughs> not one could prophesy, even with their newspapers open and having devoted hours of their life for the last few months or days to pick a bracket just to get out of the first round. Oh, 20 million people couldn't do it. 32 games. And God calls the shots for all time. Who are we? Psalm 8 asks. What is man that you're mindful of him? And yet in our pomp, in our pride, we make plans and plot and purpose, but God brings them sometimes to fruition if it's his will and sometimes not. So take your time and look at the text and be reminded whose time you're on and who controls the ebbs and flows of your life. Finally, last but not least, perhaps the most important thing. My last tip, take your time, do your homework, and there's only one right answer. Maybe you had my experience or shared a similar fate that sometimes when you were a student, how frustrating multiple choice questions could be because the teacher tries to make all of them sound right. And then they throw in that all the above. And I'm like, that's the whole problem. They all seem right. Now I'm really in the game. But God doesn't write his tests like that. He's not trying to fool you. He's not trying to make you pick the wrong one. Only one answer to God's test. And it's back in verse 2. God speaks to Daniel by way of this angel the two most important words in this section. And now I will tell you the truth. That's how you pass the exam, isn't it? Any test you've ever taken, how do you pass? You get it right. You're able to distinguish truth from error. God's word is that. That when you walk away from this section, you say about it like Daniel could see in it, this is the truth. There's no other truth out there to hang my hopes on. That's the life of a person of faith. Daniel had to hear all that was going to happen for his own remainder of his life and for the life of God's people. But what was going to sustain him in verse 2 was to know this is the truth. God knows what's going to happen. And what's kind of cool is that God was doing that to Daniel all the way back to chapter 7. 
When, when finally the tables were turned on Daniel, and these were his visions and dreams, and he was being upset by them, over and over Daniel needed to get back to one thing. Do I take God at his word? Is he teaching me the truth? Look at Daniel 7, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Sure, the future can make you feel that way. So I approached one of those who were standing by me and began asking him the truth concerning all of this. What did Daniel want to get down to? He wasn't trying to change the future. He just needed to know, is this how it's really going to be? Will this be how it turns out? I need to know the truth. Daniel 8.26, same thing happens. He's upset by his visions of the future. 8.26, the angel tells him the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which have been told, is true. They're true. Daniel 9.13, in the middle of Daniel's prayer for his people, acknowledging their sin, what was going to be what gets them out of it, Verse 13, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Chapter 10, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true. You get in the picture? What's going to sustain Daniel through these years of his life that he has to endure and into the future is holding on to the promise that God's word is true and nothing else will remain. And that's what we hold on to. Not our truths, not our truths, not our feelings, not our experiences, not our senses, not our wisdom. We build our life on God's truth. And the messages of the visions of Daniel in the second half of this story from 7 to 12 come down to this. God alone knows the truth and it's for us to seek it out and to hold on to it. So even in an obscure passage like Daniel 11, 1 to 35 that at first glance doesn't seem to offer much. If we take God's word at its word, 2 Timothy 3.16. And we believe that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It means it's beneficial to teach us. A message like today about some kings from far away can reprove us, can it? And correct us and train us in righteousness to get us back on the path of what? Following faithfully to the God who knows everything about your future. And you can entrust it to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its truthfulness. When it's very evident to us for you to, in advance, lay out 375 years of kings and kingdoms that can come and go, we, we stand amazed at the accuracy at the perspicuity, at the clarity of the way in which you know all things and no one else does. And yet you would reveal them to your servant Daniel and then we would receive them today, thousands of years later to be profited by is only a work that you can do. So help us to grow from this, help us to go from this changed through the work of your spirit and the power of your word, for your glory alone, in Christ's name alone, amen.